It's amazing how some of the uh, hymn writers just got the Christian faith and were able to convey it in a really powerful way. Uh, I don't know if I've got a favourite hymn, but uh, that's my favourite tonight. (laughs) Um, Powerful way that the hymns speak to us sometimes. I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tonight, please. Last time uh, I spoke on a Sunday night, uh, I spoke in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, and I got about halfway through the notes that I had here, and I was more than halfway through my message time, and I thought, you have that decision. Do I cut it into two, or do I try and just go to the end in a quicker way? And I decided to just rush through the last sort of points that I had there, And I made a bit of a mess of it, and I thought what I would do is do it justice to what it really needed. And so um, I've I've got those points that I didn't really bring all of the things out of that I wanted to. There was a few passages that I wanted to go to, and then I further developed the end of that passage and really um, got a lot more comfortable with the last few verses. And so we're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Some of these verses you might be familiar with from last time, but uh, there's a lot a lot here that hasn't been explored yet. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 22 to 26. It says, For what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten thereunto, hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. And let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of tonight. We thank you that we can come and we can all study one passage together and we can consider these thoughts together. And our Lord, we know that this is part of your wisdom in binding your church together, making us one body, is to study the word together. And we thank you for this. We pray now that you would help us to understand the things that are written here for us. Lord, please work in us. I pray that, Lord, we would come to the conclusions that you want us to see tonight. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen wonder if you came across this uh, news article this week. I'll just read uh, a quote from ABC News. It says, A recent study published in the Journal of Social Science and Medicine shows that when people move from unemployment into paid work of eight hours or less a week, their risk of mental health problems reduced by an average of 30%. Anyone hear about this um, news story this week? Anyone? No? No one's reading the news? Okay. I know my wife did because she pointed it out to me. So... Proof. Pastors' wives do help with messages. There you go. Goes on to say, but it also found that no evidence that working any more than eight hours a week provided further boosts to well-being. Just working Mondays would set you up for the entire week. How does that sound? <laughs> Everyone says, yes, yeah, say amen, let's go home. We're going to go and apply that this week. It finishes with a little bit of perspective and says, of course, the research doesn't account for the mental health consequences of a smaller paycheck. 
it assumes the pay stays constant. So it assumes being paid for five days or six days a week work, but only having to work one. This suggests to us, uh, either rightly or wrongly, that people work as much as they do, not because they want to or because it's best for their well-being, but more because they have to, because they're compelled to work so much. Uh, It might be because the workload that we have in our job requires more than just one day a week to get through, and I would suggest that most most of our jobs are like that. You need more than just one day a week to get through your workload. Uh, The wage that comes in from one day's work a week is not enough to sustain the family, uh, even half of the family. Uh, The purpose that we have in our job cannot be achieved by one day at it. Uh, You think about how good a uh, tradesman, how good a nurse, how good a teacher you could be if you only worked one day a week. What would you achieve? Not nearly as much as you would if you put in a whole working week. And then think about the pressure that's placed upon you by your workplace. Uh, They would require you to work more than just one day a week. And so it would be difficult to be um, happy and fulfilled with the boss and other workmates pushing you to work more than just your one day. But we don't need studies like that to tell us about the difficulty that work places upon our lives. The Bible tells us that this is the case, and the Bible, in fact, predicted that this was the case right from the beginning. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3 by way of introduction. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll just read verses 17 to 19. Brother Fraser was there this morning talking about the fall and the consequences of the fall. Here's one of the consequences of the fall. Genesis 3.17 And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken... For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Part of the curse was that labor should now be by sweat and by sorrow. And so now work is not just for the good of creation. We were created to work even before the fall. God intended for us to have jobs, to have things to do, not just to sit around and do nothing. God intended for us to have jobs, but as a result of the fall, those jobs are not as efficient as they would have been. Because of the nature of the fall and because of the curse, our labor now is by sweat and by sorrow. We have to work more than we enjoy, and the things that we do don't stay done, but they keep being undone by that troublesome thermodynamics law that was mentioned this morning as well and so our work is a problem i wonder how many things would disappear in your troubles if you got rid of all of your work troubles or if you got rid of all of your work troubles and had the time to spend on solving your other problems (laughs) how much better would the life be tonight solomon in ecclesiastes addresses work 
And he talks about some of the realities that come out as a result of work. And I think that these things apply both to secular jobs, but also for our work for the Lord, especially when we have a look at the consequences of our work for the Lord under the sun. Remember, that's the context that Ecclesiastes is written in. If you look at the results of your ministry without thinking about heaven, uh, these things are also true. Let's have a look at them. The first thing we learn about work is that there is grief in labor. Verses 22 and 23. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. The travail, the labor, uh, that's spoken about in those verses, verses 22 and 23, are both talking about work. They're both talking about hard work. And in verse 22, we read about the low profitability of that labor. For what hath man of all his labor? What is the profit that comes to us from all of the work that we do? Uh, if you want to calculate profit, you need to look at the income minus the expenses or what you get out of it minus what you put into it. And that's the profit. And so what profit do we have of all of our labor? And not just of paid work, but like I said, about ministries in a fallen world. You think about your domestic chores. Think about all the time you put into looking after the house, looking after the property, looking after the car, whatever it might be. And think about the profit that comes back from all of that labor. It's not perfect, is it? We'll put in a lot of effort and we don't get a lot of profit. You think about your spiritual labor. If you think about evangelism and you evaluate the profit of that simply based upon how many people respond to you in person, there's vanity in that. There is an emptiness because all of the work that goes into it doesn't necessarily get returned. You think about your spiritual care to other people and the appreciation that comes back to you from that. There's vanity there because not everything that you put in is reciprocated. Not everything that you put in is appreciated and not everything that you put in even has an effect as you thought it would. The teaching that you might do, the ministry that you might do in any other, um, in any other realm there is an element of vanity in it because it's under the sun and in a world that is fallen and cursed. And so we see that the profit or the, uh, the efficiency of our work is quite low. But also in verse 23, it talks about the extent of that. So verse 23 says, For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief yea his heart taketh not rest in the night this is also vanity talks about our days being sorrows now, the time that we spend at work now sorry for those of you who work nights this is talking about day work and night rest so you might have to flip it around if that's your situation but we work and it causes sorrow it's hard work, plus it's not always totally efficient. And then we go home and we try and sleep. And what sometimes wakes us up or stops us from going to sleep? Work. 
thinking about work, worrying about work, perhaps the pain from the work that we've been at. And so not only at work does work bother us, but at home work bothers us as well. His heart taketh not rest in the night. This also is vanity. It's not just the hard work, but it's the worry about the work. And we might tell ourselves that we don't really worry about work, but it does. It gets to us sometimes. Now, if you struggle with this, if you think, yeah, I I find work hard, I'm working harder, I feel busy, I feel worn out, then what you have to realize based upon these verses is that you're not special. (laughs) You're not special. If you feel tired, if you feel like work is not going the way you wanted it to go, work is not running smoothly, everything's not working out and I'm having to stress about it when I go home, the Bible says that's the way it is. It's the way it is. We shouldn't expect to live perfect lives in a cursed world. And this is one of the consequences in the workplace. Sometimes I think we fail in these areas, and I know because sometimes I fail in this area, and say things like, others aren't busy like I'm busy. Or things aren't going bad for people at their workplace like things are going bad for me at my workplace. And Sometimes people share that. Sometimes people think that uh, it's just my situation that, this is, that is this hard. Other people aren't that busy. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that this is a principle of life under the sun and if you look around here tonight we all live in the same world (laughs) we all live in the place where there's not enough days in the week not enough hours in the day we all live in a place where our efforts aren't always appreciated and they don't always achieve the the ends that we're set out to do this is the nature of the world in which we work and so we need to be careful about when we think about our work that we're not being proud of our stress or proud of our work expectations because we need to realize that this is something that we're all going through and if we can appreciate that then perhaps we'll be able to help each other a little bit more it's part of cursed life and so there is grief in labor but let's perk up a little bit and have a look at our second point there is good in labor verses 24 and 25 says there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor this also i saw that it was from the hand of god for who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than i now i'm not really going to come back to verse 25 but solomon saying who knows this better than me because i've got so much to eat and drink Uh, i'm most qualified in this area While travail or work, hard work is still grief and it's restlessness, Solomon makes a very hopeful statement here. And it's a bit of a difficult thing because we've got this idea of Solomon saying that work is vanity, but now he's saying that work is a gift of God. Which one is it? Is it vanity or is it a gift from God? It seems like we have to argue and figure out which is the truth. Someone called Huala mention this statement there just a a commentator on the this book they say this and i quote solomon clings tenaciously to both claims all life is vanity and yet 
joy is both possible and good. It is important not to make one of these claims the only message of the book, that is of Ecclesiastes, and dismiss the other as either a distraction or a grudging qualification. Solomon insists on both and often in the same passage. Solomon will sometimes say, this is vanity and yet this is what God has given for us. And sometimes those things can bring vanity and joy. Solomon has just finished telling us in the last portion that eating, drinking, partying don't bring lasting joy. He's just been through that examination and he's come to that conclusion. And so he's not um, recommending revelry and partying to us here as a gift of God that brings lasting joy to the soul. He's not saying that. He's just, we're just on the heels of him saying that's not true. So we need to interpret this in that context. What he's doing here is he's starting to introduce God into the equation. You know that by chapter 2 and verse 24, that word God, that's only the second time that this is mentioned. God's name is only mentioned this time here for the second time in the book. He's starting to add God to his perspective. Work and the benefits of work, that is eating and drinking, have found the right place in Solomon's mind in this point. It is a gift of God, not a substitute for God. And that's Solomon's point. Okay, don't think of the gifts that God give us, gives us as gods themselves. Don't worship them, but think of them as gifts from the hand of God. Um, Stedman says it like this. He says, isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find. But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more that seems to come to you. Have you found that? The more you chase after pleasure, the less you seem to be able to find it. But the more you recognize pleasure to be a gift from the hand of God, the more it seems to turn up. Solomon exhorts us to enjoy the fruits of our labor when it's done in the will of God and when our own pleasure is not our final goal. It's just a byproduct, our own pleasure. Now, the Apostle Paul really brings this out a lot more over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want you to go over there with me, please. 1 Timothy chapter 4. going to try and come up with a theology for pleasure tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So I was reading and preparing for the message, there was a phrase that one author used, and it was simply this, we need to practice thankful liberty 
thankful liberty. And think about it this way. We as God's people are free to enjoy his blessings in a thankful way. And if we keep that mindset in our minds, it will stop us from abusing, but it will stop us from depriving from the things that God has given us as well. We need to practice thankful liberty. Thankfulness for the things that God has given to us helps prevent us from going to indulgence. If I'm thankful to God for those things and I'm remembering God as I enjoy them, it should stop me from taking those things to excess. But then liberty forbids me from asceticism or depriving myself of those things that God wants me to have. I have liberty to enjoy the things that God has given to me. God gives us freely or richly all things to enjoy. And I think we minimize how good God is sometimes by not just enjoying God's wonderful gifts. And so Paul and Solomon are in harmony here when they talk about modest enjoyment being better than some kind of of shrewd hoarding. (laughs) I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to spend nothing and I'm going to lay up heaps of stuff for myself rather than just simply enjoying the fruits of our labors as the gift of God. Now, I hope that in the back of your mind, you're starting to think, but hang on a second, what about those times when God said, be careful about eating, drinking, and being merry? Isn't that foolishness? Isn't that what God warned us about? Well, those who received a rebuke for this were laying up for their flesh at the expense of their soul. And that's the key. Have a look with me in Luke chapter 12. This is the one I'm sure you're thinking of. Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Verse 15 is crucial if we're going to understand this parable properly. It says, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth, and he spake a parable unto them. What's the parable to address? See verse 15? Covetousness. This parable is to go against those who are covetous, not those who are living thankful um, enjoyment of God's gifts. All right, This is addressed against covetousness. And he goes on to speak the parable. He spake a parable unto them, verse 16, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, Who caused that to happen, by the way? God. Yeah? So God gave this man plentifully. Just note that. Verse 17. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Notice that there's two parts to that. 
layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, understanding what Solomon's saying back there in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he's not talking about laying up treasure for himself. He's talking about enjoying the fruits of labor, eating, drinking, friendship, the simple things that come as the joys of life. It's different. This man worked to lay up for himself for many years, not just to receive the simple daily fruits of his labor or the simple normal enjoyment of them, but he worked to lay up something for his future that God said, by the way, he was never going to get to. So he spent all of that time laying up riches that he would never get to enjoy. Solomon had something to say on that, didn't he? Leave your inheritance to someone who doesn't appreciate it. I was reading uh, a man called Hendrickson. Has, um, he had three points on this that I thought were very good and I thought I'd share them with you. There were three problems that this rich man had. First one, he thought that his riches would satisfy his soul. Notice what he said. Soul, take thine ease, lay up and rest. Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He thought that his soul would be bettered by material goods. Second of all, there is no mention in this passage of caring for other people. By contrast, he uses the word I eight times. He uses the word my four times. And he doesn't talk about other people. And so his goods are for who? For him. And he's not thinking about sharing it with anyone else. He's not thinking about caring about anybody else. And the third thing that is not mentioned here is there's no thank you. Who gave this man all of these riches? Who gave these men all of this stuff? God did. His land brought forth plentifully and he should have given thanks to God. But there's no thanks in this verse anywhere. He says, soul, well done. Let's lay up for ourselves and we'll be happy. You see, if we have satisfaction in God and in other meaningful things, not just God, but things that matter. If we're generous with what we have and if we're thankful for what we have, then we should enjoy what God has given to us. Because isn't that praising the God of all good gifts? Should, it, it's a great way to praise the God of all good gifts. And if you think about the other side of it, what we struggle with is covetousness, which is the wanting of more than we have, and materialism, which is thinking that we're going to be happy through stuff. Those things, both covetousness and materialism, they stop our enjoyment of God's gifts. Because covetousness has us always focused on the next thing and never upon the things that God has already given to us. And materialism causes us to look at those things that God has given to us and try and make a God out of them and they're destined to fail in that endeavor, aren't they? And so we're not going to get the value out of those things and we're going to be looking at the next things and so we're not going to take the value out of those things in covetousness either. So the covetous and materialistic person doesn't actually get to enjoy their stuff. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) 
People who are so focused on stuff don't actually get to enjoy the stuff. Brethren, we need to have hearts that are thankful, but free to enjoy those gifts of God. Thankful, liberty, enjoy God's gifts. And so there is good in labor. There is grief in labor. There is good in labor. But finally, there is also giving in labor. Verse 26, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 26. It says, For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now we note again here in verse 26 that God is mentioned a number of times. Solomon seems to be practicing some good theology in this part, thinking in accordance with God. And he recognizes that God is the giver of wisdom and knowledge and joy. These things are gifts from God. And then notice it says that the sin, to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up. And then to give up what he's got to those that are good. Okay, now how do we make sense of this? Does that sound like, sounds like God is taking away from people who deserve those things and giving it to people who haven't worked for them? What's Solomon trying to tell us here? Well, notice the difference between the inheritance of the two kinds of people. What is the gift that God gives to those who are good? Wisdom, knowledge, joy. Do those things vanish? No, they're lasting things. If they're bound around the word of God, if they are joy in who God is, if they're knowledge of Christ, uh, if they're wisdom surrounding how we ought to live, those things will never die. We can always have those things. And so the reward that God gives to the good are lasting rewards. But the rewards that the wicked get, the rewards of the sinner, this is the things that Solomon has just spoken about. All of the work that you do in your job to gather up all of this gold and silver and everything else, what happens to it? You lose it. It's elusive. And it often goes to those who thankfully enjoy God's gift. It often ends up in their possession. And so what I think Solomon's saying in verse 26 is that the inheritance of the good is an abiding inheritance, which they get to keep. The inheritance of the sinner is just like everybody else in this world, something that they strive so hard for, but there's no guarantee that they'll ever get to enjoy. And it often goes into the possession of those who are seeking after the Lord. This goes in, hand in hand with what Jesus said in Luke 19. It says, For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that that he hath shall be taken away from him. And so oftentimes God blesses those who are honoring him. Does that always happen? Does God always bless those who are honoring him and those who are rebelling against God, do they always lose? No, that's one of our frustrations, isn't it? It was one of David's frustrations when he said, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Those who don't honor God will eventually 
lose their inheritance. And so don't envy this successful materialist. It won't last and it can't bring joy. And so there's some things that we've learned about labor. We are all laboring with sorrow, just like Solomon predicted. And so I'm sorry to break it to you tonight. You're not unique. (laughs) Many people, most people are working hard without enough reward. The fruit of our labor is the gift of God, but the fruit of our labor should never be our goal. We should labor for the Lord, not for the money. And then we should ought to enjoy those things that God gives us with thankful liberty. And the simple question tonight is, are we? Are we? Because we can go wrong on this very, very easily. We can put too much emphasis on accumulation of stuff and not just simply enjoy with thankfulness what God has given to us. But then we can go the other way and we can overlook the gifts that God gives us richly to enjoy and we can think that God just wants us to be miserable and serve him. That doesn't sound like the God of the Bible at all. My God gives me good gifts and he doesn't give them to me so that I can sit there and watch them rot. (laughs) Gives me good gifts so that I can enjoy them and say thank you for them. And so let's have a good... um, A good theology of pleasure. Let's remember that we need to enjoy things with thankfulness, but that we need to enjoy things. After all, Christians should be enjoying the blessings that God gives, shouldn't they? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, tonight that we can freely say that you are a good God. Uh, You are the giver of all good gifts. And uh, Lord, if we look at our lives and we don't recognize that what you've done is good, then we really don't understand what you've done at all. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see your perspective. I pray that you would help us to see that you are a good God and someone who expects us to enjoy the good things that you provide. Lord, I pray probably more relevantly that you would help us not to be distracted with those things. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to remember that you are the giver of those things and it's to you that we need to look. We thank you, Lord, for our time in your word. I pray that it would be fruitful for all of us, not just for something to think about, but for something to live. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.